thank you all for coming out on such a wet evening, but I'm sure be well rewarded with tonight's program. Before we begin, uh, here at Sydney Law School, we always like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which our school is built, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. We make a special welcome to any of our Indigenous brothers and sisters here this evening. Uh, and we always remember at the university that here uh, we are learning and teaching on places that have uh, been places of learning and teaching for thousands of years. It always gives me great pleasure to introduce people to our Distinguished Speaker series here at Sydney Law School because this is where we highlight some of the things that we're particularly interested in in our own scholarship. And our wonderful uh, visitor this evening has been invited uh, not only from Sydney Law School but for, from our centre for the Sydney Centre of International Law and also ACEL, the Australian Centre for Environmental Law. Uh, a number of events are on, so we do hope you're able to enjoy some of those other things as well. Here to introduce our speaker tonight is in fact our uh, Professor of International Law, Professor Tim Stevens. Thank you, Joellen. Uh, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, I've got to press this, don't I, Philippe? Get the first slide up. There we go. Um, it is a great pleasure to be introducing Professor Philippe Sands, QC, in the Sydney Law School's Distinguished Speakers Lecture Series. Philippe, uh, Philippe's scholarly and professional interests range widely. Professor of Law at University College London, Philippe's research has made a major contribution across many topics, especially international environmental law. As a Queen's Counsel at Matrix Chambers, Philippe has unparalleled experience living and winning landmark international court cases, including as Counsel for Australia in the Whaling case in the International Court of Justice and for the Philippines in the South China Sea arbitration. As a writer and now filmmaker, Philippe has brought his insights to a much wider audience. Lawless World, first published in 2005, remains a classic, and Torture Team, published in 2008, an excoriation of the Bush administration's prosecution of the war on terror. The Guardian's review of Lawless World said this, that international law is a subject that on the face of it has little drawing power. Well, I think it's fair to say Philippe has done more than perhaps anyone, any other legal scholar, to dispel such perceptions through his work, and most decisively so with East West Street, a personal history of the origins of genocide and crimes against humanity. Um, it's not often that one is moved to tears, and frequently so, uh, reading a history of international law although perhaps our students might say that some legal history can move one to tears of a different kind. But East West Street is a book of immense importance, revealing the personal experiences, political controversies and painstaking legal behind the formulation of the crimes prosecuted at Nuremberg and which now form the bedrock of international criminal law. 
All history, in a sense, is personal. Like stitches in a tapestry, it is the accumulation of individual stories that make up the patterns of great events. In this respect, East-West Street is especially revealing, recounting the birth of international criminal law through the story of the remarkable geographical connections between the families of three distinguished lawyers, Lauterpack, Lemkin and Sands himself, and the unfathomable tragedies that their families endured in the Holocaust. In reading this book, one travels with Philippe as he uncovers these links through meticulous archival research along with remarkable tales of serendipity and coincidence. It's a true delight to have you here, Philippe, in person, to share your reflections on your very personal journey from London to Lviv to uncover the origins of genocide and crimes against humanity. Uh, and now I invite you to the lectern to deliver your lecture. Thank you very much for your very generous and thoughtful words and my thanks to the Dean and to all colleagues uh, in this wonderful law school. It's, it's very nice to be back, as I've mentioned to various people. I do feel I have a special relationship, not only with Australia, but with Sydney and with this law school. I've been fortunate to come many times, and many of you know Australia plays a very big part in my professional and intellectual life. Can I begin by inviting you to go back to the 1st of October, 1946, just before 3 o'clock on that Friday. It's the last afternoon of the last day of a trial that has lasted a full year in Nuremberg's Palace of Justice. Hans Frank, defendant, stands in an elevator that has reached the second floor and has stopped behind a small wooden door. In a moment, that door will slide open and he will pass through it. Courtroom Sigrid is on the other side of the door, and sitting in that courtroom is Hirsch Lauterpacht, who waits for the door to open and for Hans Frank to emerge. 700 kilometers to the west, Raphael Lemkin lies on a bed of an American military hospital in Paris, he's being treated for hypertension and he only has a radio on which to listen to the judgment. In the anxiety of that moment, whether with a sense of anticipation or dread, each of those three men might be in search of consolation. Each is a lover of music and I wonder which piece came to them at that particular moment. Let us go back four years, to July the 31st, 1942. We are in the city of Lemberg, the capital of district Galicia, in the heart of Europe. The city is no longer Soviet Lviv or Polish Lvov, the city of lions, as it's sometimes known, or the city of bitter cherries, as a poet once called it, has been controlled by Germany for a year. At the main rail station, Hans Frank arrives by train to the sound of church bells and a military orchestra. He leaves the station in a large black automobile and passes through streets decorated with the insignia of the Third Reich. As he enters the great square in front of the great opera house, renamed Adolf Hitler Platz, 
he's met by schoolchildren waving flags in red, white, and black. Since October 1939, he's been Governor General of occupied Poland, personally appointed by Adolf Hitler in return for the services he has rendered to the Nazi party since the 1920s. He was indeed Adolf Hitler's personal lawyer. He takes his job seriously and he's even found time to commission a tourist guide, the famous one produced by Dr. Baidecker. I find a copy of that guide in a bookshop and inside it this fine map of the territory under his control, the government general. Frank spends much of that day at party function. That evening, he inaugurates a new theater, a sanctuary of art, he calls it. He's a man of culture. Years later, after the war, his friend Richard Strauss will tell Klaus Mann, the writer, that Frank was a nice guy, a music lover, refined, great sense of humor. In 1943, Strauss composed a short piece in honor of Frank. I managed to find the lyrics, but the music has been lost, so to speak. Frank was swank back then. He told his audience in Lemberg, we, the Germans, do not go to foreign lands with opium and similar measures like the English, we bring art and culture. And to Lemberg, he's brought Beethoven and Fritz Weidlich, an unknown Austrian composer. He wanted von Karajan, or perhaps even Furtwängler, but neither was available. And as his repertoire, he chooses Beethoven's Leonore Overture, and then the Ninth Symphony. The following morning, on the 1st of August, Frank attends a ceremony to mark the first anniversary of the incorporation of District Galicia into his general government after the removal of the Soviets. The Gazeta Lvovska praises his elaborate, fabulous speech, a speech in which he announces the reintroduction of European rules of social order into the fine city. I'm here to thank you and to express gratitude on behalf of the Führer and the Reich, the Gazeta Lvovska reports. And later that day, he holds a series of private meetings to offer reassurances on Hitler's approach. Galicia and Lemberg are the primeval source of the Jewish problem, he says, but with the Germans in control, that will soon be addressed. We've still got a few of them around, he says, but we're going to take care of that. Like a good courtroom lawyer, he pauses for a moment of drama. I haven't seen any of that trash hanging around here today. What's going on? They tell me that there were thousands and thousands of those flat-footed primitives in this city, but I haven't seen a single one since I arrived. Those are the exact words entered into his diary that day. The audience applauds. Of course, Frank knows perfectly well why he hasn't seen any Jews. They're in the ghetto just 10 minutes away, 100,000 of them or more. And he knows all about that place because in November 1941, it's his office that prepared a map with the title Umsiedlung der Juden, Resettlement of the Jews. The ghetto is a direct consequence of his decrees. And he also knows 
that to set foot outside the ghetto is punishable by death. That, too, is a consequence of Frank's decrees. But have no worries, he says. The Jewish question is being solved. Soon, no more will they be able to roam. The message is clear, and the report of the meeting records that his words are followed by lively applause. What happens after Frank leaves Lemberg? A great deal. Within days, August the 16th, 1942, to be precise, die große Aktion begins. The great action to empty the ghetto. A week later, Himmler comes to town. Such events have consequences across great distances and over time. In August 1942, the ghetto in the city of Lemberg is emptied under Hans Frank's authority. Let me show you footage from another ghetto, the ghetto in Krakow. This unique film was made on the personal orders of Hans Frank. The footage is now in possession of his son Nicholas, and he's allowed me to show it. It's a private street scenes, people milling around, barefoot children, white armbands. Eventually we come to this young girl, girl in a red dress, with an exquisite, beautiful smile, a smile that has stayed with me ever since I first saw it. In the Lemberg ghetto, one of the families is that of a Cambridge University academic, Hirsch Lauterpacht. His parents, brother and sister, niece and nephews, and more distant family members are confined there in Lemberg and also in the ghetto in nearby Zulkiev, a small town 25 kilometers to the west. During the First World War, Lauterpacht enrolls at Lemberg's law faculty when the city is in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Three years later, in 1918, the war is over, and so is that empire. In the course of a bitter month, control passes from the Austrians to the Western Ukrainians and then to the Poles. The city's name changes with each successive regime, and there is a great deal of bloodshed. Through a long winter, Lauterpacht is on the front line protecting his parents and family. I find a photograph, a snow-covered which ends with a barricade. This was the street on which his parents lived. In the summer of 1919, Lauterpacht leaves Lemberg for Vienna. At the law faculty, under the teachings of Hans Kelsen, he picks up interesting new ideas about the rights of individuals and access to courts. A seed is sown, and soon he meets Rachel, a student of classical piano, who records that on their first date, she played one of the early Beethoven sonatas. 
Hirsch and Rachel marry in 1923. They move to London, where he enrolls at the LSE. Five years later, their only child is born, a son called Ellie. In 1937, Hirsch-Lauterpacht is elected to a chair at Cambridge University. The war begins in September 1939. Polish Lwów becomes Soviet Lviv. In June 1941, the Germans launch Operation Barbarossa and take back control of the city. Once more, it is Lemberg. Hirschlauterpacht is now 45 years old, a Cambridge professor. When Hans Frank visits Lemberg and gives his big speech as Governor General of Occupied Poland, Hirschlauterpacht is already deeply worried about the well-being of his family. He has not heard from them for nearly 18 months. His sister Deborah has a single child, a girl called Inka, who was born in Lemberg in 1930. Four summers ago, I met Inka in Paris. We drank black tea, and she told me about August 1942 with an absolutely clear memory. The first to be taken on the 16th was her grandfather, Aaron, Lauterpack's father. Two days later, she told me, Hirsch's sister, my mother, was taken by the Germans. It was on the street. My mother was by Ukrainians and soldiers. I watched from a window of our home on an upper floor alone. My father was working nearby. Someone went and told him that my mother had been taken. I understood what had happened. I saw everything looking out of the window. I was 12, not a child anymore. I stopped being a child in 1939. I knew the dangers and all the rest. I saw my father running after my mother, behind her on the street. I understood it was over. She spoke to me without any obvious emotion, for she has spent a lifetime dealing with that single moment, watching from a window. I was watching discreetly. I wasn't brave. If I had been, I would have run after her. I knew what was happening. I can still visualize the scene, my mother's dress, her high heels. My father didn't think about me. And you know what? I rather liked that. For him, it was simply that they had taken his wife, the woman he loved so much. It was just about bringing her back. So her father goes off to look for his love in a dark gray suit, and he is taken and Inca is alone. She survives a few weeks. She hides in attics, sheltered by neighbors. And one day, she just knocks on the door of a Catholic convent, and she is taken in and hidden until the war's end. The only condition is that she must agree to be baptized. Lauterpacht knows nothing of this. He's far away in Cambridge, continuing his work as an academic. Indeed, by amazing coincidence, on the very day his father is taken, he starts work with the British and American governments on the war effort, offering legal advice. On visits to the United States, he has come to know Robert Jackson, President Roosevelt's Attorney General and later a Justice at the United States Supreme Court. They worked together throughout the entire course of the war on legal matters. In this period, Lauterpacht is thinking intensely about how the law can help protect individuals. 
In the summer of 1945, after the war in Europe ends, Lauterpacht publishes a book to which he gives the title An International Bill of the Rights of Man. This sets out his ideas on the protection of the individual, the individual against the acts of states who should not be able to kill and torture and then hide behind a principle of sovereignty. It's a revolutionary idea, this draft International Bill of Rights, on which he prepares 20 draft articles. With the end of the war, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin announced that there will be a war crimes trial. It will be held in Nuremberg, and Robert Jackson will be the chief prosecutor. The British hire Lauterpacht to join their prosecution team. In July 1945, Jackson travels to London to draft the Charter of the Nuremberg Tribunal. The four powers, America, Britain, France, and the Soviet Union, disagree about the list of crimes which the tribunal will prosecute, and Jackson turns to Lauterpacht for help. On July the 29th, Jackson is driven to Cambridge, and after lunch with Lauterpacht and Rachel, they sit in the garden at their home. This is Lauterpacht in his garden. The grass freshly cut, offers a free, sweet, fresh smell. In the course of the meeting, a child will wander in. Over tea with Jackson, perhaps with a favorite Victoria sponge cake from Fitzbilly's, the local bakery, the two men discuss the possible list of crimes. Lauterpacht offers a suggestion. Why not, why not insert simple headings into the statute? Headings will help public understanding, and that will add legitimacy to the proceedings. Jackson reacts positively to the idea, and Lauterpacht offers another. They discuss the atrocities committed against civilians, a matter on which the Soviets and the Americans are deeply divided, but on which Lauterpacht has a long-standing interest, both scholarly and personal. But he still has no news of his family in Lemberg, a matter which he does not raise with Jackson. So Lauterpacht suggests this as an idea. Why not refer to atrocities committed on a large scale against individual civilians as crimes against humanity and use the term as a heading? Here you can see the words in his own hand. The term would cover torture, and murder, and various forms of persecution. And of course, it introduces a new concept into international law. Jackson likes the idea and takes it with him back to London. Within a few days, crimes against humanity is in the Nuremberg Charter. It's the first time it's ever been included in an instrument of international law. Clearly an innovation, Lauterpacht will tell the Foreign Office in London, but nevertheless an enlightened concept which is necessary to affirm that those who break international law cannot shield themselves. Pause here. As this is going on, 4,000 miles away in the city of Durham, North Carolina, at another resident of Lvov, is also thinking about these matters, but in a very different way. By coincidence, or perhaps not, Raphael Lemkin also studied at the same law faculty at the University of Lvov. He arrived in 1921, two years after Lauterpacht left, and he earned a doctorate in criminal law. 
He had been born 300 miles to the north on a farm near Azarishka, now in Belarus. The great love of Lemkin's life is his mother, Bella, who would sing to him simple Russian poetic melodies, which he will always remember. From this world, Lemkin moves to Warsaw to work as a public prosecutor. At a League of Nations meeting in 1933, he proposes a new international crime to combat barbarism and vandalism against groups. But Lemkin's focus is not on individuals. Like Lauterpack, it is on large numbers of people bonded by racial, religious, or national identity. Nothing comes of his ideas, as Hitler has just taken power. But this concept will become his cause, his obsession. Six years later, in 1939, when the Third Reich invades Poland, Lemkin is in Warsaw, he manages to escape, and makes his way to his parents' town of Vulkovysk, now under Soviet control, and from there to Stockholm. The following year, in 1941, he's offered academic refuge at Duke University in North Carolina. The journey from Stockholm to America is long. Three quarters of the way around the world, Europe is closed, so he travels first to Riga, and then by plane to Moscow, and from there across the Soviet Union to Vladivostok, to Japan, and then across to Chicago, and then Durham, North Carolina. He has little money and almost no personal belongings, but he travels with a huge quantity of luggage for an unusual reason. He has spent his time during the last months in Stockholm collecting all the decrees he can find promulgated by and other Nazis in the territories they occupied from 1938. Lemkin's luggage is filled with paper, literally thousands and thousands of pages of decrees, which he carts three quarters of the way across the world. These he will buy in America. He obtains a book contract to see whether there's a master plan underlying the German actions. The book is published in, in November 1944. It is called Axis Rule, and Chapter 9 uses a new term. For Lemkin has invented a word for a new crime. You can see it here in his hand. Genocide, the destruction of groups. In the summer of 1945, Lemkin is hired by the US War Department to assist in the prosecution of war crimes. He works with Jackson's team, but separately from Lauterpacht. He wants the German leaders to be charged with the crime of genocide for the destruction of groups. In August, he is greatly disappointed to learn that the Nuremberg Charter will make no reference to genocide. It includes crimes against humanity. Yet all is not lost. Lemkin flies to London, where he works on the indictment of the specific charges against the 22 defendants and presses for the inclusion of genocide. There is strong opposition to Lemkin's efforts from Jackson's office under pressure from southern US senators who worry that claims of genocide might be made by blacks in America. And the British, too, are opposed, worrying that such a crime will be claimed by the victims the many victims of colonial rule. Many of colleagues think he's just too pushy, yet against the odds, his word makes it into the indictment, and it comes with his 
own definition, the extermination of racial and religious groups, and it specifically mentions Jews, Poles, Gypsies, and others. It will cover all ill treatment and murder of civilians in all occupied territories, including Lemberg and Volkovitz. On October the 18th, 1945, the indictment is filed at the tribunal. I went to London and I succeeded in having inscribed the charge of genocide against the Nazi war criminals in Nuremberg. There is here a striking coincidence. The two men responsible for introducing crimes against humanity and genocide into international law studied at the same university, walked the same streets, entered the same buildings, and had the same teachers. But they developed very different ideas on how the law might protect against atrocity. The origins of these two crimes can be traced to the city of Lemberg, to events at the end of the First World War, to the law faculty of the university. Indeed, you can trace the origins to one teacher the two men had in common, Julius Makarevich, a Polish professor of criminal law. You can follow the line to a building and to the very room where Makarevich taught, which I have visited and in which I imagine each of the men sitting. A quarter of a century after studying criminal law with Professor Makarevich, these two men are now deeply involved in the Nuremberg trial. Lauter packed with the British, urging for the protection of individuals, Lemkin with the Americans, arguing for the protection of groups. They are together, but they are apart. And they share something else, the terrible fear of loss. For neither man has any news as fate of his family. The trial opens on November the 20th. Amongst the 21 men in the dock is Hans Frank. He was caught in May 1945 near his home in Bavaria, along with 42 volumes of his diaries and a fantastic collection of stolen art. Amongst the many paintings is this one, Leonardo da Vinci's portrait of Cecilia Gallerani, the lady with an ermine, painted in 1489. It hung in Frank's private rooms at the Varvel Castle for more than four years, and he took it with him when he left Krakow, back for Germany in January 1945. Frank's son, Nicholas, tells me that as a young boy, his father would make him stand in front of the painting and part his hair just like Cecilia Gallerani. Now, Frank is in the dock, charged both crimes against humanity and genocide. It's a long way from the good old days, hanging out with A.H. and Richard Strauss. He is swank no more. He sits near Hermann Goering, dark glasses concealing his expression. Lord Justice Geoffrey Lawrence is the English judge who will preside over the trial. He describes the event, without understatement, I think, as unique in the history of the world. Lemkin is not present. He's been confined to Washington because his colleagues find him to be uncontrollable, obsessively pushing his genocide agenda, which treats all acts as subject to that crime. He is simply not seen as a team player, constantly 
talking to the press. Now Tupac is in court, a member of the British team, but strongly opposed to Lemkin's word. He thinks genocide is impractical and unsupported by past practice, but even more importantly, he worries that this on groups will distract from the far more vital task of protecting against individuals. On the opening day of the trial, the prosecutors described the terrible acts in the eastern countries, the crimes against humanity and acts of genocide, and they home in on what happened in Lemberg. Over 133,000 persons tortured and shot in the days following Frank's visit, 8,000 children killed in just two months. Lauterpacht listens, but at this time he does not know whether the victims include his own family. The prosecutors then turn to the individual defendants, with Goering, who sits to Frank's right, coming first. It falls to an American prosecutor to address the charges against Frank, describing his career. Lemberg is at the heart of the indictment against Frank, and Frank's administration is at the heart of the entire case against the Nazis. On this day, in late November 1945, Lauterpacht and Frank are in the same room, I would very much like to see a photograph of that, but Lauterpacht's son, Ellie, tells me that no such photograph exists. I'm introduced to the archives of Getty Images, the largest collection of photographs from the trial, and I spend a day or more going through hundreds of those old glass plate images, each one in a little envelope. After several hours, I eventually find what it is that I'm looking for. If you look carefully, the top left-hand corner, you will see Hirsch Lauterpacht at the end of the British prosecution team table on the left of the image. His elbows are on the table, his hands clenched under his chin. He seems to me to be attentive behind a Soviet prosecutor at the lectern. If you move down to the lower right-hand corner, you'll see the oversized figure of Hermann Goering in a light-colored suit. And then if you move six along, to the left, you can see the semi-bowed head of Hans Frank. Lauterpacht and Frank, divided by just a few tables and chairs. On that day, Lauterpacht still knows nothing of the fate of his own family. He will have studied Frank very carefully, but if Frank noticed Lauterpacht, he will not have known of any personal connection between them. Six months into the trial, Frank finally gets his day in court. It's April the 18th, 1946, a chance to set out his defense. The tribunal has just listened to evidence from a lonely survivor from the killings of Treblinka on Frank's territory. Samuel Reisman explains that he was present on the platform for the arrival and dispatch of Sigmund Freud's three elderly sisters. I visited Treblinka with my son four years ago, curious to see what remained. We had lunch afterwards at a small restaurant in the nearby town of Brock, placid and hushed, a world away killing fields graphically described by Samuel Reisman. The restaurant is a simple place, and a radio plays an unlikely tune. Familiar words float around the room. A song I know catches my ear. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Frank is questioned about his role in Poland after 1939. I bear the responsibility, 
he says. This is unexpected. Do you feel guilty, he's asked. That's a question for the tribunal. Five months into the trial, he's been able to gain a full insight into the atrocities. I am possessed by a deep sense of guilt. It feels like an admission of sorts. On the stand, he seems nervous, looking around for signs of approval from the other defendants, but it's not forthcoming. Did you loot art treasures? I did not collect pictures, and I did not find time during the war to appropriate art treasures. What about the treasures in the possession when you were captured? I was safeguarding them, but not for myself. You cannot steal a Mona Lisa. He's referring, in fact, to Cecilia Gallerani, and the argument is hopeless. Someone notices that Goering is deadpan, but all the other defendants are grinning. Did you introduce Jewish ghettos? Yes. Did you introduce badges to mark the Jews? Yes. Did you yourself introduce forced labor in the government general? Yes. Did you know of the conditions in Treblinka, Auschwitz, and other camps? Pause. Auschwitz was not in the area of the government general. I was never in Meidenek, nor in Treblinka, nor in Auschwitz. He doesn't answer what he's been asked. He knows it to be a dangerous question, one he sidesteps. Did you ever participate in the annihilation of the Jews? I say yes. And the reason I say yes is because my conscience not allow me to throw responsibility solely on minor people. He wants to be clear. I myself have never installed an extermination camp for Jews or promoted the existence of such camps. But he does recognize having fought against Jews for years and his own most horrible utterances. My own diary bears witness against me. It's no more than my duty to answer your question in this connection with yes. And then he says this, a thousand years will pass and still this guilt of Germany will not have been erased. Silence descends over the courtroom for Frank has accepted a collective guilt, the guilt of the group but not his own individual guilt. Goering is seen to shake his head in disgust. Did you hear him say that Germany is disgraced for a thousand years? One of the defendants is heard to whisper, yes, I heard Goering retorts. During the lunch hour, Frank talks with Captain Gustav Gilbert, the US Army psychologist who is tending to him. I did know what was going on, he says. And he hopes that the judges were impressed by his sincerity. Yet, just a few weeks later, when he returns to the stand in August for his final statement, he completely retracts the tentative, limited expression of collective guilt. The other defendants have got to him. Von Ribbentrop tells Captain Gilbert that no German should ever say that his country is disgraced for a thousand years. And Admiral Dönitz, Hitler's successor, complains that Frank should only have spoken as an individual for him, not for Germans as a group. In June 1946, Hirsch Pact finally learns of the fate of his family. The news comes from Inka, his niece, who is in a displaced persons camp in Austria. She has tracked him down after reading 
of a newspaper report that describes the involvement of her uncle in the trial. She sends an acquaintance to Nuremberg who stands outside the Palace of Justice for three weeks, whispering, Hirschlauterpacht, Hirschlauterpacht, as people come and go. And eventually someone recognizes the name, and this leads to a letter and to contact between Lauterpacht and his niece. Inka tells her uncle she is the only member of the family to have survived. His parents, his brother, his sister, and everyone else is gone. And later that year, Inka will come to Britain to live with Hirsch and Rachel in Cambridge. The prosecuting powers make closing arguments at the end of July, and this is an intensely difficult period for Lauterpacht, one of personal grief and professional challenge, for it falls to him to prepare a large part of the closing arguments for the British. In this period, he writes frequently to his son, Ellie, and one letter describes the moving strains of Johann Sebastian Bach's Matthew Passion, from which Lauterpacht draws solace and strength. The Matthew Passion must have had a particular resonance for Hirsch Lauterpacht, for the work reflects Bach's desire to emphasize a pietist belief in the place of the individual. Every aria but one in the Matthew Passion is sung as ich, I. The three landmark choruses are sung in the first person plural, with the emphasis of downplaying the role of the priest celebrant and the church, downplaying the role of the group. The connection with Lauterpacht's focus on the vital importance of the individual is plain. Lemkin has to wait a little longer to learn that his family in Volkovisk has suffered exactly the same fate as the Lauterpacht's. There's just one survivor, his brother Elias, with whom he is reunited in Munich. Elias Lemkin survived because he and his family happened to be on holiday in Moscow in June 1941 when Hitler invaded. Within days, Volkovisk was occupied. Lemkin's nephew Saul, who lives in Montreal, the son of Elias, impecunious, surrounded by books but with a superb memory, tells me the story of that moment of being reunited. And one detail particularly haunts him. He recalls his uncle's visit to the hospital in Munich where he, Saul, was recovering from a minor operation. The Germans in the clinic were very, very nice to me, very polite, but my uncle would not look at them. He hated them like they were poison. As the trial draws to an end, the prosecution offers closing arguments. They address crimes against humanity in some yet genocide too remains in the frame somewhat surprisingly. The Soviets, the French, and the British by now have all supported a conviction for the crime of genocide. But Robert Jackson, on the other hand, who closes for the Americans, says nothing about genocide. Indeed, no American prosecutor mentions the word. The word never passes Jackson's lip in the courtroom, not once. British support for the genocide argument is unexpected, for Lauterpacht is strongly opposed to the concept, and indeed, he makes no mention of it in the draft he prepares for Hartley Shawcross, the British Attorney General who deliver the UK's closing arguments. Lauterpacht's son Ellie shows me a copy of the handwritten original manuscript, which argues for the protection of every individual human being and the rights of man against the cruelty and barbarity of his own state, but notably makes no mention of Hitler or of the Nazis. 
for Lauterpacht is implacably opposed to the reduction of matters to a struggle groups. Elie, in fact, tells me that his father never talked about the fate of the family. He was a most private man, not prone to public displays of emotion, which makes all the more striking one feature of Lauterpacht's draft. Over dozens and dozens of pages, the only defendant Lauterpacht mentions more than once is Hans Frank, the defendant most directly connected to the murder of his own family. Only at the end of the 76-page handwritten manuscript does Lauterpacht permit himself to become personal, to target the man who sat but a few feet from him in the dock. The handwritten version reflects a rare passion and anger. He writes of the accused, neither have they seriously attempted to alleviate the anger of the civilized world by a simple admission of guilt. Even the abject confessions with a ring of sincerity have been no more than artful evasions. This is a reference to Frank, to the tentative expression of collective responsibility offered in April, retracted in August. In his handwriting, he continues, witness defendant Frank, confessing to a sense of deepest guilt because of the terrible words which he has uttered, as if it were his words that mattered and not the terrible deeds that accompanied them. What might have become a redeeming claim to a vestige of humanity reveals itself as a crafty device of desperate men. He, like other defendants, have pleaded to the very end full ignorance of that vast, organized, and most intricate ramification of the foulest crimes that ever sullied the record of a nation. Of the legal arguments, Shawcross uses most of Lauterpacht's text, but he makes two significant changes. First, he adds British support to the concept of genocide, and second, he removes every reference to Hans Frank. By now, Lemkin too has learned of Frank's role in the destruction of his entire family. In an archive, I find this undated page of pencil writing in Lemkin's own hand on a single sheet of lined yellow paper. If you look at it carefully, you will see that he's written the word genocide out at least 25 times and then crossed them out. And he's also toyed around with other formulations. But if you look very carefully at the piece of paper, you will see right in the middle, hidden amongst the thicket of words, another is crossed out with a line pointing that resembles an arrow. And the word is frank. Judgment is given over two days, on September the 30th and October the 1st, 1946. Frank is the seventh to learn of his fate. Has he done enough to save himself? Hoping for mercy, he too thinks about music, frequently evoking the work of Johann Sebastian Bach, the Matthew Passion. This we learn from the diary of Captain Gustav Gilbert, the army psychologist. It must be erbarme dich, erbarme dich, mein Gott. Have mercy, have mercy, my God. How extraordinary. Two men on opposite sides of the courtroom finding solace in the same musical space. As the judgment is read out, Frank sits motionless, his head 
slightly slumped. The American judge Francis Biddle reads from a prepared text summarizing his role. He focuses on Polish days, Frank's destruction of Poland as a national entity, the ruthless exploitation of its resources. He crushed opposition through a reign of terror, allowed concentration camps to be introduced on his territory, including Treblinka, where Lemkin's parents perished, although Lemkin would never actually know this. Frank oversaw the liquidation of the Polish intelligentsia and thousands of Poles. He deported slave laborers to Germany. He persecuted Jews by forcing them into ghettos, starving them, and then systematically and brutally exterminating them. Biddle takes note of Frank's expression of terrible guilt for the atrocities committed. Does Frank think he can avoid conviction? Biddle reads from a prepared text. It may well be true, he says, that some of the crimes committed in the government general were committed without his knowledge. But if Frank's hopes rise, they are soon crushed. Frank was a willing and knowing participant in terror, exploitation, starvation, the deportation of Poles, and a program involving the murder of at least three million Jews. He's found guilty of crimes against humanity and war crimes, but the judgment against him, like the entire judgment, makes no mention of genocide. When the tribunal adjourns for lunch, the word has disappeared completely. Sentences will be announced after the break. The tribunal reconvenes at 10 to 3, and the defendants this time are not in the dock. Each awaits his turn outside the courtroom. Each will enter alone to hear the sentence and then be taken out. For many present in the proceedings, the enduring memory of the entire trial is this single hour and the small sliding door at the back of the dock through which the defendants will enter to face the judges and hear their fate. Open, shut, open, shut, open, shut. The door slides noiselessly. So writes R. W. Cooper of the Times of London, who was the newspaper's lawn tennis correspondent. To protect the dignity of the defendants, the handing down of the individual sentences is not filmed. Frank comes in at number seven, up the elevator, through the sliding door, into the courtroom, and he then loses all sense of direction and stands with his back to the judges. The guards have to spin him around. This is observed by the well-known writer Rebecca West, who's sitting in the press gallery and who happens to be having an affair with Judge Biddle. Odd proof, she will write, of Frank's complete sense of perturbation. Frank listens to Lord Justice Lawrence, who speaks four words, Tote durch den Strang, death by hanging. Frank will never know that the French judge, his old acquaintance, Henri Donnudeau de Vabre, professor of criminal law at the Sorbonne, whom he invited to speak at a conference in Berlin in the summer of 1939, and who then joined him for dinner with Julius Streicher later that evening, voted for life imprisonment only, but was overruled by the other judges. The French judge was said to be curiously tender towards Frank. Frank leaves through the sliding door. Open, shut, open, shut. When Captain Gilbert comes to his cell, Frank smiles politely. He is unable to look at the military psychologist. Death by hanging, Frank says softly. He nods his head. I deserved it, and I expected it, and he will not have long to wait. Two weeks later, 
on October the 16th, Mr. Cooper of the Times is now in Paris, and it is there that he receives the news of the hanging. In his memoir, he writes that he learned of the end in a little Paris restaurant as musicians strummed a popular new song written by Jean Sablon with the title Insensiblement. A photograph of Frank's hanged body is sprawled across the back pages of the newspaper. Ça, c'est beau à voir. What a beautiful thing to see, one of the patrons murmurs, idly turning the pages. Frank was the sixth to be hanged in the courtyard of Nuremberg's Palace of Justice. Lauter Pact is satisfied with the judgment, believing it will contribute to the protection of individuals, but Lemkin is distraught. The judgment makes no reference to genocide, not even once. He tells an American prosecutor that the silence of the judgment makes the day the blackest of his whole life, worse even than when he heard about the death of his parents and family a few weeks earlier. What came next? Modern human rights and international criminal law came alive as a focus of international attention. The debate between the focus on the individual and the group never was decided, and so both were embraced. A month after the judgment, the General Assembly of the UN adopted Resolution 95, affirming the Nuremberg Charter, the judgments against humanity, as part of international law. The next resolution, number 96, was adopted later that same day, but went much further than the tribunal. It affirmed that genocide is a crime under international law. Two years later, in December 1948, the UN General Assembly adopted a convention for the prevention and punishment of genocide, largely driven by Lemkin's efforts. His single-minded focus, carried out through a stream of letters and personal appeals, had finally borne fruit. And the next day, the same body agreed the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, a non-binding instrument that drew considerable inspiration from Lauterpach's book and his draft. In 1950, the European Convention on Human Rights was signed, first binding instrument setting out a list of minimum rights for all individuals and setting up a court to hold governments to account. The legacies of Lauterpacht and Lemkin have been far-reaching. Crimes against humanity and genocide live side by side. Their ideas, the ideas of the end, are the stuff of my everyday working life. And as a lawyer and scholar, I've watched the concepts for the protection of individuals and groups take root. Most curiously, over seven years of research on this book, I found no evidence that despite their common origins and paths and their presence in the same city at the same time, it seems that the two men never actually met. More than 50 years will pass before their ideas are taken forward. The catalyst is the crimes in the former Yugoslavia and in Rwanda and the creation of two international criminal tribunals by the Security Council. Then in July 1998, more than 50 state, 150 states adopt the statute for an international criminal court. Six decades after Donnelly de Vabre and Hans Frank met in Berlin to debate the idea of a court, it finally exists with the power to rule on genocide and crimes against humanity. Two months later, in September 1998, the tribunal convicted Jean-Paul Akayesu, who oversaw the persecution and slaughter of Tutsis by Hutus for the crime of genocide. 
he becomes the first person ever to be convicted for the crime of genocide by an international court. In November 1998, the House of Lords in London rules that Augusto Pinochet, former president of Chile, cannot claim immunity before the English courts because the crimes of which he is alleged are crimes against humanity. This is a first such national ruling. In May 1999, Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic becomes the first serving head of state to be indicted for crimes against humanity, for alleged acts in Kosovo. In October 2000, after he leaves office, genocide charges are added in respect of atrocities alleged in Bosnia at Srebrenica. In March 2007, bringing us closer to these facts, an American judge strips a man with the name of John Kaliman of his American nationality. Why? Because, the judge rules, in August 1942, after Frank visited the city, he was in Lemberg, a Ukrainian auxiliary policeman who rounded up Jews in the city, and that was a crime against humanity. In September 2007, the ICJ in The Hague ruled that Serbia had violated the obligation to prevent genocide in Srebrenica. This is the first time that any state is condemned for violating any part of the Genocide Convention. In July 2010, President Omar al-Bashir of Sudan becomes the first serving head of state to be indicted for genocide by the International Criminal Court. And then in 2012, Charles Taylor becomes the first head of state to be convicted of crimes against humanity and sentenced to 50 years of prison. The cases go on, and so do the crimes, as we know from our newspapers. After I first told this story in general terms at a lecture that I gave at the law faculty in Lviv, a young woman approached me. She was a student. Why, she asked, do you take such a personal interest in these matters, which are so much a part of your working life? I explain. Lemberg happens to be where my grandfather was born in 1904. I came to Lviv to see the streets of the city that he must have walked as a young boy when Lauterpacht and Lemkin were living there. Many decades passed before another and far more direct connection emerged between my family and the Lauterpachts. For Hirsch Lauterpacht's son, Ellie, was my teacher of international law at Cambridge back in 1981. We then worked together very closely and did so for more than a quarter of a century before he and I learned that his father and my great-grandmother Amalia Buchholz were born in the same small town of Zhulkiev. Even more remarkably, it turned out that they lived on the very same street, just a few hundred meters apart. The street is known as East-West Street. It was called Lemberger Straße back then. Then I learned that my great-grandmother, who must have walked her first steps on the street of Lauterpacht, walked her last steps on the street of Lemkin. She was on the same transport that brought the three Freud sisters from Theresienstadt to Treblinka. She too was observed by Samuel Reisman, and that was where she perished, on Himmelfahrtstrasse, the street that took 
people from the train station and the platform to the gas chamber at Treblinka. Two weeks after her, both of Lemkin's parents, Bella and Joseph, walked down the same street. Lauterpacht and Lemkin, individuals and groups, Zolkiev and Treblinka. So personal stories matter. And in that vein, I share with you that I've come to know Hans Frank's son, Nicholas, as you will have divined. The first time I meet him, we sit together at a table in a garden that overlooks the River Elba. I'm there to argue a case at the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea in Hamburg. He removes a small piece of paper from his jacket pocket, and he shows it to me. It's the photograph that you have seen of the lifeless body of his father, taken shortly after his hanging, which Nicholas carries around with him at all times to remind me that he is truly dead, Nicholas explains. Later that day, later in our relationship, Nicholas and I will travel together to Krakow to visit the Vavel Castle. Indeed, it's to film part of my Nazi legacy, which some of you will see tomorrow night. The director of the Vavel Castle Museum allows us to spend a few minutes alone with the painting of Cecilia Gallerani, the lady with an ermine which hangs back at the Vavel Castle. This is the first time in 70 years since the summer of 1944 that Nicholas has been in the same room as the painting. And the director allows me to take a single photograph of that moment to capture what it was like. Later that evening, Nicholas and I dined together at a restaurant in Krakow's old town. He asks me about the book that I'm writing. Towards the end of our meal, three people come towards our table. The older of them is a distinguished-looking lady, and she says to us, we couldn't help but overhear your conversation. Your book sounds so interesting. We talked and then invited them to join us. It turned out that it was a mother with her daughter and her son-in-law. The mother was an academic, a chemist. She now lives in Brazil. She's a serene, distinguished individual. She's come back to the city where she was born, but from which she was forced out in 1939 for being a Jew, a 10-year-old Jew. And she explains that returning is never easy. How much of our conversation has she overheard? Not much, it turns out. The daughter, who was born well after the war in Brazil, where she also lives, takes a very much stronger line than her mother in relation to these matters of history. She says to us, I enjoy being in Krakow, but I will never forget what the Germans have done. I will never talk to a German. Nicholas and I glance towards each other. And then the mother looks towards Nicholas and asks, and you, are you a Jew from Israel? Nicholas answers immediately, quite the opposite. I am a German. I am the son of Hans Frank, the governor general 
of Poland. There was a fleeting moment of silence, and Nicholas stood and then rushed out of the restaurant. I found him later that evening, and he said to me, you know what, they are right to have such strong views. I feel a shame for the wrong that the Germans have done to them, to their mother, to their family. And curiously, it then falls to me to comfort him. Individuals and groups, it turns out, is never an easy thing. Thank you very much.